told you you were in for something special this morning, so that means I'm not speaking. Amen. That's right. Even unsolicited. That might be crossing a line that we don't want to cross. Anyway, this transformational church series that we're in, next week will be the final week. This week, the transformational church changes the world. When we talked about this way back uh, last fall, uh, when we, at the end of fall, right in the beginning of winter, we met with Kyle uh, just prior to, to his, his wife, Caroline, giving birth to their daughter, Lydia. And uh, we talked about the potential of, of maybe doing a little fundraising event at the end of the year uh, to help them as they begin this missionary journey uh, that they're going to set off on this fall as they finish their training this summer and then head uh, over to the Middle East to serve and uh, we just began that conversation. And it was about that time that God began putting this series together. And wouldn't you know that God's plan was perfect? Shocking. In way more ways than you'll ever know, trust me, uh, it was completely perfect. And so the timing is perfect. And I, I updated you a while back, but, but we're going to probably do this every year. Have some kind of something the very last day of the year as an opportunity for people to, to worship through giving in a very special way. And so just, just keep that in the back of your mind. And this last year, our goal was to raise $3,000, and that would be about the amount it would take for both Kyle and Caroline to complete all of their linguistics training, learning the language of the country that they'll be in. You don't really get to do that until you get there. And so uh, we, we wanted to step up and do that, and you guys more than did that. In the end, uh, $4,545 is what we're sending them. And so I actually gave them that check today. And so how special that is to be able to provide that for them. Um, I thought it was a perfect opportunity for some folks that are getting ready literally to go and take the gospel to the world to talk about exactly how important that is in our mission as the church and our goal. And they can do it way better than I ever could because they have that heart to go and do that in that way. And so how exciting it is to have them. And so Kyle, I will turn it over to you officially now. Would you welcome Kyle Tharp? And actually, Caroline coming up now too? Perfect. Alrighty, good morning, everybody. Well, as the pastor said, my name's Kyle, and this is my wife, Caroline, our new baby, Lydia, just a few weeks old. Um, and we are preparing to go overseas. Um, we've been preparing to go overseas for some time now. Uh, Caroline is originally from uh, the Chattanooga area in Tennessee. Uh, I am originally from Terre Haute. I went to Terre Haute South High School, graduated there in 2012, um, and then went to, yeah, Terre Haute South. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then we met at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, where uh, we both went to school. Uh, Caroline was studying, teaching English to speakers of other languages, and I was, speaking, I was uh, uh, studying biblical studies at that time uh, when we met. So after joining on with our organization, after we were married, we began praying, Lord, where would you have us go? We both knew that we wanted to work among unreached people groups, um, but we didn't know where, so we started seeking the Lord and wise counsel, and after... Um, Speaking with a couple in our organization, our sending organization, they um, told us they had just been kicked out of a country in the Middle East uh, where they were doing work of evangelism and um, building up the church, basically. And it seemed like a perfect fit for us, so we prayed about it, and um, we decided that that was um, 
where the Lord had us. Um, so just a little bit about that country. We can't say the name of it, but um, it is in the Middle East, and it is 90 96% Islamic and 99% unreached. So if you're not too familiar with the term unreached, that means that they have no access to the gospel unless somebody from the outside goes in. So there's no one who knows anything about the gospel at all unless someone takes it to them. So that's why it's very crucial to go to among unreached people groups. Yeah, and I don't know if the slides are working. Um, if, if they are, if we could show the first slide. Yeah, so that gives you a little bit of an idea there. Those orange countries there's the region of the world, uh, somewhat precise, as precise as we can get uh, on, on the internet about where we're going. Uh, uh, and there, again, the reason for that sensitivity is that the couple that we're replacing had just been kicked out, and so uh, we're just trying to be careful um, with that. But uh, as Caroline mentioned, th these people are unreached with the gospel, so unless somebody goes in, they will not get the gospel. And as Bible-believing followers of Jesus, uh, we take the scriptures seriously. And Roman, um, excuse, excuse me, Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says that there is no name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved except for the name of Jesus. And so the difficult and hard reality that we have to grapple with then is that 99% of the people in that country, we're talking tens of millions of people, are on a path to hell unless there is intervention uh, by the church, unless the church goes to these people because there's nobody there who can give them the gospel. And so that's a hard reality. It's something that we have to grapple with, though, if we hold the scriptures to be true and we hold these statistics to be true, that they don't have the gospel, nobody there has the gospel, that means they're going to hell unless we get involved and we get there. And so uh, it's something we're quite passionate about uh, doing. So I think, like you said, we joined on with our sending organization, um, and we've just been in the process now for uh, over a year. Uh, we are hoping to go this fall. Um, we are hoping to finish our final training in the States this June and leave in July or August, so I guess summer-ish. Uh, but... Uh, trying to think anything we left out here. Some needs still remain. Uh, one thing that we take seriously also is the power of prayer, which is something that I'm going to share about a little bit today when I speak uh, here in a moment from, from the Word of God. Um, our sending organization will not allow us to leave the country unless we have 100 daily prayer partners. Uh, right now we have 89, uh, so we are looking for 11 people who will say, I will pray for this ministry daily. I will uh, go before the Lord and pray that he would open the hearts of the Muslim people in the Middle East, that they would come to know him um, for our protection, that we wouldn't be found out and kicked out, things like that. Uh, so we're looking for 11 more daily prayer partners, and then we also still have some financial, monthly financial support uh, needs that remain as well. So similar to the United States, if you have a campus ministry, if you have a church ministry, things like that, the church funds that ministry here. Uh, the difficult part there is that there is no church. So we rely fully on churches in the United States to support this work there. Um, yeah, go ahead. If you'll uh, click to the next slide. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is, I, we just wanted to really quickly show you kind of, we were able to go in um, late June, or early June, late May, um, to the country that we're going to be in. And so just to give you guys a little bit of a picture of what um, that city will look like, this is kind of just a, a little snapshot as into the world of, of how they live and, and what it looks like on a day-to-day -day basis, too. So just wanted to share that really quick because I didn't know if you remembered that slide. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, 
So we are so grateful for the gift that uh, this church gave to us this Christmas, uh, delivered to us today in hand um, for our linguistics training. Uh, It is all about not making converts, but really inviting Muslims into a transforming relationship with Jesus and his church, making disciples of all nations is what Jesus called us to. Um, And man, how do you talk to somebody about Jesus? How do you disciple them? How do you help them to understand the Bible if you can't speak their language? So there is a dollar amount that they are charging us for language study, but man, the value of it far surpasses the dollar amount that they have put on it. So we are super thankful for you guys funding that ministry for us. Um, We know that that's going to have a lasting impact for eternity because of the conversations, the sort of things that we're going to be able to do there because the Lord put this on your heart, because you partnered with this ministry. So we just want to say thank you uh, so much for that. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to share? All right. Well, this morning I have been asked to speak in this transformation series. I'm going to bring this up here. I hope that's okay. In this transformation series about how the transformed church seeks to transform the world. How the transformed church seeks to transform the world. Now, I want to ask you this morning have you seen transformation occur before? In a city, in a community, in a country, in a family, have you seen transformation? Would you be able to recognize transformation if it occurred before your very eyes? Well, I'd like to share with you one time when I saw a city of three million people be transformed in one night. Three million people in one night. The city, when I tell you what city it is and what happened, you're going to be like, oh yeah, I remember this. The year was 2016. I was a student at the Moody Bible Institute in downtown Chicago. It was a brisk November evening, like any other, except for this was game seven. The World Series was taking place. The city was on edge. Now it's always on edge, but it was on edge in a different way this evening. I sat there in my dorm room with several of my friends watching the Chicago Cubs in the World Series. Now, for those of you who aren't baseball fans who might not recall this event, uh, man, the Chicago Cubs had not, been to, had not won a World Series in 108 years. Think about that. Chicago Cubs fans, year after year after year, were saying, maybe next year. Maybe, maybe next year. And statistically speaking, like, it, surely it would happen, but 50, 60, 70, 80 years were going by, and it wasn't happening. In the 1990s, one of the most famous Chicago Cubs broadcasters said, as sure as God made green apples, the Chicago Cubs would win a World Series again. But it had been 20 years even since then, and these fans were downcast. These fans, a lot of them, had believed they were under a curse. These fans thought it would never happen. They had become the laughingstock of the Major League Baseball. And here we were in Game 7, overtime really, extra innings, and they finally did it. I sat there and I watched as the Chicago Cubs won. And my friends and I, we looked at each other. To be honest with you, I'm not really a Cubs fan, but I knew, I knew what I had to do. I said, we have to get to Wrigley Field. We have to get to Wrigley Field. Now, the game was not being played at Wrigley Field, but I needed to be able to tell my kids and their kids' kids that on the day the Chicago Cubs won the World Series, I was at Wrigley Field. And who knows, it might not happen for another 108 years, so this could be huge. 
So my friends and I, we grabbed our train passes, our IDs, we walked out of our dorm building, and immediately we could tell the atmosphere in the city of Chicago had been transformed. In every direction in the sky, fireworks, which are illegal in the city of Chicago, were going off from everyone's balcony, from everyone's rooftops. The city was lit up. Honking was coming from the interstate, but this was not normal get-out-of-my-way honking. This was celebratory honking from the cab drivers and the Uber drivers who had heard it on the radio and needed to join in with the chorus of the city about what they had just experienced. We loaded up, we we headed to the uh, train station. You can take a train right from the Moody Bible Institute right up to Wrigley Field. And, you know, it's after 11 o'clock at night at this point. Not wise to get on a train in Chicago. So we're a little little concerned, but as we approach the train station, it's different than it would have ordinarily been at 11 o'clock. You see, the train station was packed. Apparently, everyone in Chicago knew they had to get to Wrigley Field that night, and so singing was radiating out of the trains, and they were, the trains were honking their horns. We loaded into these train cars, and sardines would have felt sorry for us with how we were so packed next to each other with singing, with hugging, with dancing happening on the train. We got about two miles away, and the conductor came over the train, and he said, we cannot get closer to Wrigley Field. Everyone has to get off of this train. And I didn't really know what that meant. What do you mean you can't get closer? The train goes, like, right up to the stadium. Well, as I got out and we made our way to the street, it became evident what he meant. You see, all of the streets throughout the city around Wrigley Field for miles had been blocked off by the police because there were just swarms of people marching towards Wrigley Field, millions and millions of people, waves of people descending upon this field. And there on the curb, I looked to my right, and a man who certainly was at least in his 50s was crying tears of joy about what he was seeing that evening. Transformation struck that city that night. They had been a people who were under a curse. They had been a people who had no hope in the future. And that night, everything changed, and the city was changed, if not just for that evening. And I want to ask you, what brought about that transformation? It was a break in business as usual, as Chicago knew it. It was a break from the losses that they have been enduring for 108 years. It was a break in the normal. They did something different, and it changed a city. Brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago, God took on flesh. He came, he walked among us. He did miracles, he walked on water, he rose the dead, he broke business as usual. For 400 years, Israel waited, longing for God to intervene on their behalf against the Roman Empire, the Greeks, so on. God took on flesh, he dwelt among us, he carried our sins in his body on the cross, was crucified, died, buried, and rose again. And transformation happened. The early church, who saw this with their own eyes, took action. They had to tell the world that had no hope, that was under a curse, that transformation could happen, that victory had been won, that one day we weren't going to make our way to a stadium, but before the throne of God, millions and millions, far more than we can count, from every tribe, nation, and tongue gathering around, not Wrigley Field, but the throne of Jesus. And today, our world is in need of transformation just as it was 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, the disciples started sharing the gospel. 
They started caring for the needs of those around them, and they were people full of prayer. And the result is that the gospel spread quickly. The Roman Empire declined, Christendom advanced, the temples of the polytheist were emptied, and the gospel advanced with great power. Today, brothers and sisters, we don't face a Roman Empire, we don't face these temples of the polytheist, but there are certainly idols in our culture that need to be cast down. There are certainly powers at B on our earth that need to be toppled. And the gospel must go forward with the same passion and the same power that it had 2,000 years ago. And so today I would like to talk to you about how the transformed church transforms the world by taking a look at the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we get a glimpse at the early church and how they did it. So if you have your Bible with me, turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, and we're going to get our first scripture for today's passage, or excuse me, today's message from Acts chapter, six, or chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. As you know, by this point in the book of Acts, Jesus has been raised. He's been raised now for 40 days. He's been talking to the disciples about the kingdom of God, and he's told them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And this is what happens in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. It says, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. This passage begins with the disciples asking a question, Lord, is now when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? What we see here are embers still shining in the disciples' hearts that Jesus was coming to restore one nation on the earth. They had hoped that he would topple the Roman Empire. Man, would they have loved to see Pontius Pilate's face when Jesus shows up again. But Jesus lifts their eyes a little bit higher. He casts the vision a little bit further. It's not just one nation that he's going to transform. It's not just one nation that he's going to restore. But he says it's going to be into the ends of the earth. In verse 8, he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here I want to, thank you, here I want to briefly say the way the early church did this is by sharing the gospel, caring for those among them, and they were people of great prayer. If you leave here today knowing nothing else, I hope you know that to break the cycle, to break the business as usual that we experience we need to be people who share, who care, and are full of prayer. He says to the disciples, you will be my witnesses. Jesus does not call them to be great theologians, great speakers, great orators, the next Billy Graham or anything else. He says, be my witness. And this is good news because the disciples were mere fishermen. They were ordinary people. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, I feel bad for them because it's the inspired word of God and it says they were uneducated men. It kind of, you know, you know just kind of tells us plainly what they're about. 
But a witness doesn't need to have great training. A witness doesn't need to have a degree. A witness doesn't need to do anything except for tell of what they have seen, what they have experienced. And the disciples had seen and experienced quite a lot, right? They had seen Jesus walking on water. They had seen his crucifixion, his resurrection. But brothers and sisters, you and I have been witnesses also. You and I have seen what it means to be born again. We've seen what it means to be brought into the family of God and be given community. We've seen in our lives or in the lives of our friends what it means to have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. We've tasted and seen the goodness of God. For some of you, you may have seen the liberating power of God's grace against sin patterns and addictions. And for others, perhaps you've seen the reconciling power of God in your homes and in your marriages. And Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses about that. We don't need to get into the specifics of, well, well, how did God bring that about? How did he bring about your being born again? What happened metaphysically within you? That's not what he's asking us. Just like the blind man in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man, and when they say what happened, he doesn't say, well, my eye, it was messed up, and then this is what happened, you know, uh, biologically. Here's what, here's what occurred. He says, man, I was blind, and now I see. Like, this is what I've got. It's my witness. It's my account of what God did in my life. And Jesus says, that's precisely what I'm asking you to be. That's precisely what I'm wanting you to be. God's grace empowers ordinary folks, regardless of rank, education, to boldly bring his message to many. And if we want to see transformation in our cities, in our states, in our nations, we have to begin sharing what God has done. And this is preaching to the choir, right? In church, we know we have to share the gospel. But the reality of the fact is many of us don't. We cower for many reasons. Perhaps we have social anxiety and we think, man, I can't have a conversation with somebody I know. I, I don't know. This is just going to be weird. Or I don't want them to think less of me. They'll think I'm weird after this and I work with them. I see them at school. But brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning. In Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, that's, that's a command, but he follows it with this promise also. He says, I am with you always. I am with you always. So when you're sitting there and you're wondering, Lord, I, I can't have this conversation with this person. I'm alone. I need somebody here to help me. God is with you always. That is a ministry partner that can be relied on more than anybody else who you might think has every answer. And brothers and sisters, if you worry, well, what if they think I'm weird? I want to remind you what's at stake. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is no other name given among men by which we may be saved but the name of Jesus. And we can think to ourselves, yeah, but in Terre Haute, Indiana, and Greencastle, and in Brazil, these people know the gospel. You know, I had heard the stories until I was a sophomore in high school, And I'm so glad that the kid who sat behind me at Terre Haute South in my biology class, even though he knew I heard the stories, even though I told him I had been to church before, shared the gospel with me, knowing that I might reject it, knowing that I might think he's weird. In fact, I did. (laughs) But he didn't care. He was somebody who knew what was at stake, and he wouldn't stop inviting me to his church. He wouldn't stop sharing the gospel with me because he knew what's at stake. And I'm so glad that somebody did not just assume that I knew, and so they didn't need to share. Consider what God can do through you also. Peter, on the night Jesus was betrayed, denied Jesus three times. Three times he denies him. But Peter, in Acts chapter 2, is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He stands up, shuffles forward, and is a witness. And 3,000 people came to know the Lord that day. Now, man, 
God can use somebody who's so afraid of what people will think of him if he's associated with him, with, with God. He can use you. It's less about you and what you know and what you're capable of, and it's more about God who is in you, who's going to use you, who's going to use me, who's going to use all of us. That is where the power lies. It's not in us. We need to reorient our thinking on this. When God commissions us to share, he says, be my instrument, be one who I will work through. And the early church did this. In Acts chapter 2, Peter spoke at Pentecost, 3,000 people came to faith. In Acts chapter 3, they share in Solomon's portico, more people come to faith. In Acts chapter 4, they speak to the leaders of Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 5, they've been sharing the gospel so much by this point that the religious leaders lament, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. I want to ask you this morning, if we were to speak to the leaders of Brazil, Greencastle, and Terre Haute, Indiana, would they say we have filled these regions with the gospel? Have we filled them with this teaching? And if not, I want to encourage you that business as usual must be broken. We must begin to be a witness. We must begin to tell of how Jesus liberated us from our sins, how he broke our chains, how he joined us to himself in the church, how he gave us purpose and identity. And so that's the first way we break business as usual and bring about transformation in our community, in our state, in our country, so that we must be willing to share the gospel. And the second is this, care. Care. We must care for the needs of those around us. In Acts chapter 2, verse 45, I'm going to read, I'm sorry, verse 42 through 45, I'm going to read this passage. It says, talking of the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were performed by the, uh, the apostles. And all believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give them to anyone in need. The early church understood that Jesus had promised that God would care for their needs. They understood that he said, if he clothed the grass of the field that's here one day and thrown into the fire the next, how much more would he clothe you? They understood he would. They remember Jesus saying, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and God still cares for them? How much more is he going to care for you? And they took those words seriously. So seriously that it says here that they were selling their possessions, putting other people's needs before their own, not seeking to become wealthy, not seeking to become famous, not seeking to become great, but humbling themselves Modeling Jesus, who humbled himself, even taking on the form of a, serv- a servant. And they understood that the body of Christ was the means by which Christ would provide for, each, for them, for those with needs in their community. And by being able to be used by God to meet the needs of one another, they did what God calls in James chapter 1, verse 27, pure and faultless religion, caring for the orphans, the widows, and the poor. They were able to show that their gospel words about a God who cared about them, both body and soul, could be backed by action. He really cared about them, body and soul. They said, here we are, the body of Christ, the church, and here we are meeting your tangible needs. They had care for those among them. As we stand here today in 2023 and look at the world around us, 162 million people are living on less than 50 cents a day in our world. One in 27 children born today will die of malnutrition by the age of five. As we look into a world where 700 million people in 2023 still don't have access to clean water, 
We can look to them and say Jesus is the living water and the bread of life, but unless we meet their needs, unless we care for them physically, we disobey Jesus who said, love thy neighbor as thyself, and whenever you give to the poor, you've given to me. But worse than that, we undermine our sharing of the gospel. By caring generously for the poor through medical missions, building wells, running food pantries, visiting those in prison, we communicate to these people that we really love them. We back up our sharing. But more than that, we demonstrate through visible image this picture of the gospel, that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for our sake, pouring out everything on the cross for us to raise us up to the Father. The early church demonstrated that as they gave what they had, selling their possessions to make sure no one had need among them. And if you worry, well, Kyle, you know, sharing the gospel, that's like the heart of it, right? Like, that's the heart of it. Of course, of course, sharing the gospel, there's no other name by which you may be, they may be saved. But when we think, what other group does this? What other group sends millions and millions of dollars overseas to build hospitals and schools and wells for people they don't know and they will never meet? What other group sends Christmas gifts to kids on the other side of the world who they're not related to? It makes people stop and wonder, man, what is this all about? And it presents such an opportunity to say, Jesus Christ, God, who though he was rich became poor for our sake, taking on the form of a servant, dying on the cross for you and for me. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we either need to share the gospel or care for the poor. I'm saying these two things must advance hand in hand. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, we see this plainly. There's uh, rapid church growth, right? Peter steps forward in Acts 2, preaches 3,000 people come to the Lord. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, 5,000 more come to the Lord. The church is expanded, and they are distributing food to widows, they're distributing food to widows. Widows in the first century desperately needed this kind of care. You see, if your husband died, it was seen that that was a curse from God. There was social outcasts labeled on you. And they relied on religious groups or family to care for them. And so the church was meeting their physical needs. And these Hellenist widows speak up and they say, man, we're getting looked over in the food distribution. We're not getting food. We're not getting what we need and the disciples, when they hear this, they don't say, you know, as transformed followers of Jesus, yeah, but we're here to share the gospel, not, not do that. No, they institute a whole other office of the church. The, the deacons are brought up and they say, we need to hand in hand minister the word and minister the tangible needs of the people among us so that the church can do both. And by doing this, we model Jesus himself beautifully. In, Act, excuse me, in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, Mark chapter 6, verse 30, a story I'm sure you are all very aware of. Jesus feeds the multitudes. He's out in the pasture lands of Israel. Uh, he's been teaching all day on this great teaching crusade, you know, sharing the mysteries of the kingdom. I'm sure everybody's getting tired. They're parched. It's hot out. The disciples come to him. They say, hey, Lord, um, man, great sermon. Uh, it's getting late. My stomach's getting a little grumbly. I'm sure others are feeling that way too. Let's send them to the nearby cities to get food. And how does Jesus respond? Let's send them to the nearby cities to get food. Jesus says, give them something to eat. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, don't send them away. I'm not here just to care for their spiritual needs, but physical needs also. 
And we, the body of Christ today, face multitudes again, on the frosty streets of Chicago, to the hot sub-Saharan Africa, to the mountains of Nepal and India. The multitudes are in need again. And we, the body of Christ, are here. And the same Jesus who said to the disciples, then don't send them away, looks to us and says, do not send them away. He moves through his body, the church, to minister to the needy, the sick, and the hungry through his endless mercy and grace. And finally, the last way the early church transformed the world was by being people of prayer. They remembered the words of Jesus so well. In John chapter 15, verse 5, he said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to remember this. We need to remind ourselves of this daily. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says that all the believers were gathered together constantly in prayer. In Acts 2, 42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. All throughout the book of Acts, the early church is praying. They understood that apart from Jesus, they could do nothing. They don't bring about gospel transformation on their own. Only God can do that. They needed Jesus to drive the gospel transformation because gospel transformation looks like lives changed, communities built, families restored, marriages restored, the spiritually dead coming to new life. And that is a work of God, not man. We can do positive thinking all day. We can hear encouraging messages, read really nice storybooks, but nothing will bring gospel life-transforming action until God is involved the one who knit the night skies together, who formed the mountain, who, mountains, who delivered the Israelites through the sea, who delivered us from the tyranny of Satan through the waters of baptism, is able to bring gospel transformation, but we are not. He alone is able. And so if we don't have him in this, we have nothing. And so they understood that prayer is where the power is. If they don't have prayer, there will not be transformation. And so the early church dedicated themselves to this, understanding that the church was not merely a social club, the care for the poor was not merely charity work, and prayer kept them connected with God. It kept them grounded on who he was and who they were and what this was all about. The early church understood that if they lacked prayer, they would lack transforming power, and so they gave themselves to it. And they prayed in ways that we wouldn't think. When they were persecuted, they didn't pray, Lord, break the jaw of that person, you know. They, they prayed for boldness to keep going out. So maybe we also need to evaluate, you know, how am I praying, Lord? Um, and let that be a heart check. 2,000 years ago, the church was sharing the gospel. They were caring for the poor among them. And they were people of great prayer. The temples were emptied. The churches went up. In Acts chapter 17, so much sharing of the gospel had occurred, so much caring for the poor had occurred, so much prayer had occurred that by the time Paul arrives in Acts chapter 17, somebody offhandedly says, man, the people who have turned the world upside down have shown up here also. I don't know about you, but when I look into the world today, when I turn on the news today, when I turn on social media and I see what's going on, I just wish God would turn the world upside down and shake it up again. Brothers and sisters, he has given us the church. He has given us each other. He has given us the Holy Spirit in each and every one of us who's followers of Christ. And if we will dedicate ourselves to sharing the gospel, caring for those in need around us, and being people of prayer, he will shake things up.
We need to break the business-as-usual approach to our lives. So for application today, I want to ask you, have you been a witness? I want you to stop for a moment, and I want you to think, when is the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? When is the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? I want to encourage you again, as somebody who didn't come to know the Lord until high school, but I had heard the stories, don't think that somebody knows it and give up on them. You never know when God is going to do a work in their life. And when Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, he said, you will be my witnesses. He said in Jerusalem, that's where he started. I want to remind you that Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit hasn't come upon them yet. They have not left Jerusalem. So Jesus is essentially saying, be my witnesses right here, right now, right where you are. See where your feet are. He's not saying, load up the donkey, buy an airplane ticket, nothing like that. He's saying, right here, be my witnesses. This is the place to start. This is the mission field to begin in. And I want to ask you, secondly, how involved are you on ends of the earth ministries? Jesus called us to begin right where we are, but not to stop there. He called us to Judea and Samaria just to step out from there and then to the ends of the earth. And I want to ask you, how involved are you in ends of the earth ministry? The terrible reality that we face currently is that three billion people on the globe are unreached with the gospel. And as we said earlier, that means they are on a road to hell unless there is intervention. So I want to ask you, are you involved in any way in intervening on their behalf? By going, perhaps. Have you ever stopped and thought, is God going to call me to be a missionary? thought, no, 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 no. I'm going to turn back on the TV. I don't want to think about that too long. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, cut 10, 15 minutes out of your week this week and think, is God going to call me to global work? Now I want you to cut out double whatever you cut out the first time in prayer and ask God to make you open to that because it is precisely us, precisely this group of people here who God said, you will be my witnesses, yes, in Jerusalem, yes, in Brazil, yes, in Judea and Samaria, Indiana, the United States, but in to the ends of the earth. I want you to receive that challenge and begin today even by saying, Lord, would you open my heart to the idea that this could be something that you have for me? Find a way to be involved in ends of the earth ministry, whether you're going personally, whether you're sending others to go, whether you're praying for the work to go. The history of gospel transformation, the history of successful missions is the history of answered prayer. So brothers and sisters, begin praying for global workers overseas. Begin praying for the gospel to advance. The second application point here is, have you been caring for those in need in your community? through food pantry ministries, ministries like the Hope House or uh, 14th and Chestnut Center or others? Have the needs of the poor become a burden to you like they were for Jesus? And if not, I want to encourage you to remember Jesus who became poor for our sakes so that we might have eternity with him. And the last one is be people of prayer. So many people dismiss prayer. So many people dismiss prayer and don't see the value that it holds. But again, as I said earlier, I'll say again, prayer is where the power is. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. You can send 
a billion dollars to global work. You can send a billion missionaries to global work. But if Jesus Christ is not in that work, it is meaningless. We desperately need people to pray both for safety for the church, for provision for the church overseas, for missionaries overseas, but also that God would move in the hearts of these people who are dead in their transgressions, that he would deliver them from the darkness of Islam that they are sitting in, and that his bright light would break in. I want to encourage you to take time. Set aside five, ten minutes in your devotional time daily just for prayer, just for prayer. And I've heard people say, man, I don't see the fruit of prayer in my life. I don't see what's happening. Um, I give this application point to a lot of people. I I learned it from an older man in Chicago when I lived there. Go out today, buy a 50-cent journal from Walmart, Baszler's, Kroger, wherever you shop. Draw a line down every page in that journal. And on the left-hand column, begin journaling, writing what you are praying for. You know, the big and the little things. When I go to Walmart, Lord, give me rollback prices on eggs and not inflationary prices on eggs. <laughs> you know, God, in a few weeks I have a surgery coming up. Let that go well. Let me get through that. And then be faithful about it. And go back and on the right-hand column, begin writing the very details of those answered prayers. Begin, begin watching the faithfulness of God in your prayer life unfold. If you ever wonder, God, are you hearing my prayers in heaven? You'll begin to have a whole collection of answered prayer testimony right before you about how he was faithful to you. There's this man in Chicago who who shared this with me. He's been doing it for uh, 30 years. And you go into his apartment, and he's got all these 50-cent notebooks. And it's just not the way I decorate my house, but he's got all of them there. And you say, you know, throw those away. And he says, that's the faithfulness of God in my prayer life. And so if you're somebody who says, man, I don't cut time out for prayer because I don't see the value in it, I want to encourage you, start taking notes on what God is doing in your life and be, just begin marveling at the fact that your prayers are going to heaven. They are bearing great fruit. And let that be an encouragement to begin praying for the nations also. The truth of the matter is, God told us what's going to happen in the end. One day, just like Wrigley Field, where millions of people were marching to see that stadium, Countless multitudes will stand before the throne from every nation, tribe, and tongue. He said in Malachi 1.11, My name is going to be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where the sun sets, people are going to be worshiping me. Now we have the opportunity to be involved in seeing that happen. Or we can sit back on the sidelines and not see it happen. And the choice is ours. Will we engage? Will we be a part of what God is doing? Or are we going to sit on the sidelines and not see transformation? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your kindness, for your mercy. God, we thank you so much that each and every one of us in this room is a testimony that somebody came to us with the gospel. Jesus, that you did not leave us dead in our sins, but you took our sins upon yourself on the cross. You were crucified for our sakes, raised to life. Now, Lord, you clothe us in your righteousness. You give us good standing before the Father. Jesus, we thank you that you have not left us just to be idle and to sit here, but you have given us a task. Jesus, you said in your word in the book of John, you said, as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. Jesus, I pray for each and every one of us that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, encourage us today to go out, to be those sent ones. Lord God, I pray for 
courage to share the gospel. Lord, for a renewal by your Holy Spirit to not seek self-ambition, to not seek puffing up of ourselves and our own accounts, but Lord Jesus, that we would care for the poor, remembering your model. Though you were rich, you became poor for our sakes. And God, I just pray, convict our hearts for the times we have not prayed. God, move in us. Show us your faithfulness, how quickly we forget your mighty works that you have done among us. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, move in us to speak to you, knowing not only that you hear, but that you care. And Lord, let our prayers be in agreement with your will that all nations would come before you. People from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue transformed, Lord, brought out of darkness and into life. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.